This is Nick, man. What's up? Hey, man. How are you? Good. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I just wanted to start and say thank you for joining me tonight. I know we've been going back and forth for a while, so it's cool to finally get a chance to talk to you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, sure, man. I know it's been a while. I've been kind of a headache trying to, but yeah, the season and then the time change is tough, man, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Um, are you in Japan right now? Yeah, I'm sitting here in my apartment right here in Tokyo. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So, Basically, typically what I do when I'm talking to, to former Mavericks is basically just, you know, ask them about, about their career and, you know, start maybe talk a little bit about high school and college, and emphasis on their time in Dallas, and talk more about, you know, what, what happened either after that or, or during that and things like that, and then what you're doing now. Yeah, sure, whenever you're ready. So one of, one of the first things I like to ask is, uh, how did you get started playing basketball? What, what initially attracted you to the sport? So my dad played, my dad is about 6'10", and he uh, he's probably the one who put the basketball in my hands when I was young. started when I was about five, and I mean, he had a big influence on me, and you know, I, I did it every year, obviously, since I was five, and I played all the other sports and everything like that, and then I think just, you know, I was, I was really good at basketball. I was, you know, I, basketball was something that I enjoyed when I was a kid, so I just did it every year and never never kind of got away from it. And then, you know, I ended up growing when I was in high school, which then kind of just sealed the deal to be like, hey, you're a basketball player. <laughs> so would you say it was prior to prior to high school when you started to notice that you were significantly better than, you know, your, your friends and teammates? I would say it was probably in high school, actually. Um, when I was younger, like middle school, even elementary school, you know, it's funny because uh, – you know, I'm not an excellent defender anymore, but um, back in the day when I was younger, I was kind of like a defender, rebounder, kind of energy sort of guy. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the kids that I played with were a little bit better offensively. But then, you know, obviously my skills really developed, especially when I got to high school and probably even a little bit of middle school. And then um, once I got to high school, I just kind of started to realize that I was a lot better than everyone else. And then it became really, really fun for me. Yeah, absolutely. And um Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, but you went to Ralston Valley High School in uh, Arveda or Arvada, Colorado? Yep, that's right. While you were playing there, I know, or just in doing some research, I saw that you were Mr. Basketball in Colorado in 2003. While you were there, uh, or while you were playing either at the high school level or AAU or anything like that, were, any, were there any future NBA players that, that you played against? Oh, uh... That's a good question. Um, not in Colorado, obviously. There was no one. Well, actually, I mean, uh, Jason Smith, who plays for the Wizards, he's a Colorado kid, so I played against him. Mm -hmm. And we played against each other in the All-Star game in high school in Colorado. But it's hard for remember in AAU if I actually played against anyone that actually played in the NBA. I would imagine maybe there had to have been one or two guys, but it was never like any of the big names or, you know, I never – like when I was at, obviously when I was at Nike camp, when I did the Nike camp in high school, obviously a lot of those guys got drafted. You know, I, was, I mean, LeBron was there, but he didn't play. But like Chris Paul was there. And oh. um, so there were several different guys that got drafted in that. Um, but that was probably my only taste of like getting to play against like super duper high level. When I did AAU, it was a little different than what it is now. Obviously it wasn't as big. And, um, we weren't the most talented AAU team since we had a bunch of Colorado kids, but, um, you know, I can remember in high school when uh, we went to the Las Vegas tournament 
Uh, I think I was the second leading scorer in the whole tournament. And that was kind of like, you know, I was a big highlight for me because it was like, you know, that was the biggest, that was the biggest tournament, you know, arguably on the West coast, maybe in the country. Um, and then, you know, I was out, I was able to go out there and average like 29 points a game. So at that point I was like, okay, look, I know I can score with anyone, but yeah, I just, you know, we were always like, we, we would play in the pool. And if there was just, you know, if there was one of these teams, you know, super athletic or super skilled teams from, you know, Chicago, New York, we just, we weren't going to be able to hang with them. But, um, we had a couple guys on my AU team that ended up playing some Division One. Like we had a guy named Lenny Miles who played at University of New Mexico. We had a couple guys that ended up playing college football. Like we had a buddy of mine, uh, Chase McBride, who ended up playing college football at the University of Colorado. He was our point guard. So we had some athletes on the team, but we just we weren't built like you know like some of these AAU teams where it's like they're handpicking all the best players in the country to play for their team. But yeah, that's cool that you, I mean, you still obviously more than held your own against some pretty uh, impressive competition. So that's really cool. So I know you obviously had a very stellar high school career. What, what was your recruit, recruitment process like um, that led you to going to Nevada? Um, so when it came down to it, it was like, it was uh, LSU, Marquette, Utah, and Nevada. And LSU soured off me real quick because Brandon Bass decided he was going to go to LSU. So then LSU stopped calling me after uh, B. Bass ended up going there. Oh, wow. Went to Marquette, um, had a recruiting visit to Marquette with Tom Crean, got to sit down with Dwayne Wade. Thought that was pretty cool when I was, you know, an 18-year-old kid. <laughs> That's really neat. Um, but just didn't really, like, didn't really enjoy the way I was, like, I don't know. They, you know, I thought they were going to redshirt me. Uh, they kind of, you know, in a sense, kind of, you know, they were recruiting me, but they kind of felt like, well, are you going to be good enough to play at this level? And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And then I actually took my dad with me to Utah, and that was when Majerus was there. I just went and watched practice, and I was like, man, I couldn't do this. Like, the way that he used to stop practice, the way that he would just – I mean, practice would go on for hours, and it was like there was never any rhythm to practice. He wasn't really letting guys play five-on-five, five, and it just looked like it was miserable. So I was like, I'm not – I don't think I'm going to have, you know, any business coming here. And then – uh, there's a guy named Tom Asbury who coached some college basketball and uh, he was my dad's high school coach and um, he's good friends with Mark Fox who you know in turn became my college coach well anyway Tom called me up you know whenever it was and was like you know Nick will you please just go check out Reno just please just go check it out you know mm -hmm. it'll be a good time Fox will take good care of you and this and that and you know I can I can remember when I was being recruited I was kind of just I was I didn't really I didn't really love everyone patting me on my back I didn't love everyone telling me how good I was it just yeah I don't know I just it, it felt like everyone was kind of maybe a little bit fake or it was like they were just doing too much so I just kind of the, the whole recruiting process got a little bit old to me so I was kind of just I was a little bit reluctant to go to Reno. And then obviously when I went, I had a lot of fun. You know, Trent Johnson was my coach my first year and he sat me down and basically told me that I was going to get a chance to play. He had no intentions of redshirting me. You know, he thought that I could be a piece to the puzzle. And, you know, at the time Kirk Schneider was there. So he had told me that, you know, there's going to be NBA scouts at practice. They're going to be at all the games because Kirk was there. So, I just kind of felt like it was sort of a match made in heaven for me because 
you know, I was going to get a chance to play and I was going to get a chance to play in front of NBA people every day due to Kirk. And so I went home after that and, you know, I just, I went home and I think I told my mom and dad, like, you know, I think I'm going to be going to Nevada. Like it felt like the best place. And, you know, like I said, I enjoyed the guys and Fox took really, really good care of me on my recruiting visit, you know? And so at that point, I kind of made my decision, and, you know, I tell people all the time it was probably the best decision of my life to go to the University of Nevada. Yeah, that's really cool uh, how how you ended up going there and everything. And then just to circle back to one thing you mentioned, I know you said you witnessed a uh, Rick Majerus practice. Uh, for college, I actually went to St. Louis University, which was the last stop of uh, Majerus's coaching career before he passed away a few years ago. So obviously, I never got to see any of his practices or, practices or anything, but he, he definitely was an intense coach. And yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there that uh, he, he was a coach while I was a student there. Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, obviously Majerus is, you know, a Hall of Fame guy. And, you know, he put Keith Van Horn in the NBA and he kind of kept telling me that I would be the next Keith Van Horn. And, you know, obviously when you're 18 years old and you're hearing that and I think Keith was a top five pick and, you know, he won conference player of the year like three years in a row or four years in a row, whatever it was. So Keith was a pretty impressive guy himself. And... When I was hearing that, I was thinking, man, like at, at first I was like, I'm going to Utah. Like, I know I'm going to Utah. I'm going to get to play for this Hall of Fame coach. And he thinks I'm this and yada, yada, yada. He'll really be able to develop me. And then when I saw practice, like I said, it was just like, it was constantly being stopped. I mean, you know, Majerus was constantly chewing people out and he had guys running on the sidelines. And it was just like, like I said, it was just like no rhythm to practice. And it just... I think I watched practice that day and it was like well over two, two and a half hours. And I just remember looking to my dad and I was like, man, this doesn't look like it's much fun. It looks yeah. like everyone out there, looks like everyone out there is miserable. I mean, I can't take away what the guy accomplished and all the winning and, you know, everything like that. But at the same time, it just wasn't, it didn't look like it was going to be for me. So I know when I went home, I knew I wasn't going to be going back to Utah. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And obviously it sounds like you made the right decision because I know you had a very successful college career and uh, you went to the tournament four times and you were a conference player of the year multiple times as well. Um, what were some of the most memorable games of your, of your college career? Probably the most memorable one was that win at Kansas uh, my junior year. You know, I went in there and played really, really well. And, you know, after my sophomore year, I had you know, kind of like put it out there that I was thinking about declaring and, you know, I didn't play very good that tournament. We had played against um, Illinois and Texas and Texas was just, they had some big boys that I just, you know, I wasn't ready for that. And, you know, um, Illinois was obviously the team that, you know, they were runner up that year and they, they had a bunch of studs as well. So it was just bad matchups for me back then. And I remember I thought about declaring and, you know, I had one guy that just ate me up in the media talking about how you know, I had no chance to play in the NBA, yada, yada, yada. So when we got to go to Kansas that following year, you know, it was a big it was a big game for me because, I, you know, it was a bunch of NBA guys playing at KU and you're at KU and no one ever wins at KU. And um, so that was a big one for me. And then um, I would say another one was the Michigan State win my freshman year uh, because that was the first NCAA tournament win for Nevada in a long, long time, and uh, I can specifically remember we were down like 12 or double digits, I think, with, you know, under 10 to go, and I remember looking up, and I was like, man, you know, everyone always says it's so hard to get to the tournament. We got here, and we didn't even, we didn't even get to win one game, 
and I just kind of was sitting on the bench like, man, this, this stinks. Like, it's just it sucks that it's already over. And then sure enough, we went on a run, and we ended up winning the game, and then, you know, went on to beat Gonzaga, you know, pretty easily, and then um, got to that Sweet 16. So, yeah, I was just – you know, there was a lot of, you know, obviously all the tournament games are pretty memorable. I can remember each and every one of them. I can probably even remember specific possessions in the, you know, in those games. Um, but uh, definitely that Kansas game probably most most comes to mind for me. So I'm not, I'm not a huge college basketball fan, um, but who, who was on that Kansas team that you played against that, that, that night? Uh, so uh, Julian Wright was on that oh, team. Yeah. Uh, Darnell Jackson was on that team. Uh, Sasha Khan was on that team. Um, I want to say Mario Chalmers was on that team. Is that Brandon Rush too, maybe? Yeah, Brandon Rush was there. That's right. Gotcha. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously a lot of the – yeah, I mean, that was a very good team. At, at some point, some of those guys ended up winning the championship, I think, like in, back in 2008. So, that's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, and, obviously, I know, even though I'm not like, a huge college basketball fan, I know – Getting a win at Kansas is not a uh, an easy accomplishment, so that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, we, I remember, you know, now you sometimes I watch, you know, I watch a lot of, I watch a fair share of college basketball, and anytime there's a game in Kansas, they, you know, sometimes they'll they'll you know they'll they'll put it up on the screen that like, you know, these are the teams in the X, last X amount of years that have won non-conference games at Kansas, and obviously they always give a shout out to us and. Mm-hmm. You know, Nevada's on the list, and it's, like you said, that list is, like, tiny. And so, um, you know, it was a big – it was a big deal also because the year before, we went to Kansas, and we got banged by, like, about 30. I mean, we we weren't – we shouldn't even have been in the same gym as Kansas that year. And so it was a little bit of revenge, I guess. Um, you know, we had a three-game – my freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, we played them, and they came to us my freshman year, and I want to say they were, like, number two or number three in the nation, and we beat them. Kirk, Kirk uh, had just played out of his mind that, that game, and we beat them there. And then my sophomore year, we obviously just got, you know, rolled. And then my junior year, we were able to get them back. So it was kind of sweet, too, because we won two out of the three years. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah, that is so I know once your once your college career ended and you're getting ready for the 2007 NBA draft, what were your expectations heading into that draft? Oh, uh, I mean, I sort of expected that. I, I I guess I yeah, I expected to go in the first round. You know, I just you know I did a lot a lot of workouts. I think I did like 13 or 14 workouts, and the very first workout for me was. I didn't do the pre-draft. My agent and I had decided that we weren't going to do that. So, but at the time, everyone went down to Florida for the pre-draft, and they had all the NBA scouts there and GMs and everyone. So, it was a way to work out for a ton of ton of teams at one time against some guys that were down there for the pre-draft. So, I remember I worked out with like Jason Smith and uh, Josh McRoberts and. Um, you know, some guys that were, you know, did get drafted ahead of me or some guys that are, you know, were supposed to be better than me. So I remember licking my chops and thinking, all right, man, this is when it all starts. You got to go out there, you got to play well, and you got to prove to everyone that these guys aren't better than you. So, you know, actually after that first workout, I played really, really well and definitely left and thought I was the best player in the workout you know and I that was like my that was my goal every workout was to leave and say hey you were the best player in that workout and so 
you know, I would say the majority of the time I felt like that. So I just kind of felt like after I was like, you know, I played well, I did everything I needed to do. I shot the ball really, really well. And just felt like, you know, I just, you know, I had everyone kind of told me, yeah, you're a first round guy, you're a first round guy. And, you know, obviously it didn't work out that way, but being the first pick for the Mavericks that year, it kind of did feel like in a sense, I was the first round guy since the Mavs hadn't picked anyone else. But yeah, I mean, expectations at the same time, you know, I should have just, I probably should have left after my junior year. I probably shouldn't have stuck around for my senior year. That that was probably a bit of a mistake on my part. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a mistake. I, you got drafted onto, I mean, you obviously yeah. you accomplished your goal. So, I mean, that, that was really cool. That, and you got drafted into a, a team that had, you know, won a lot of games the previous year. What was your um, initial impressions coming into uh, that Mavericks training camp? Of, just of like of the city and of the organization, things like that. Well, I mean, obviously the city's great. Um, so my aunt and uncle, and I got two cousins that live in Plano. So oh, cool. the night I got drafted, you know, my aunt called me and she was bawling her eyes out. And <laughs> she'd, she'd always wanted family members to come live in Dallas. And, you know, now I was set to come to Dallas. And I got a cousin of mine who's, we were only two weeks apart. He was at uh, the University of Colorado, and so we had decided, like, hey, man, you're going to be coming with me. So now she's going to have two family members. So we were excited for Dallas, and, you know, we had been to Dallas when we were kids, and so I knew Dallas was going to be an awesome place to be, and I knew, you know, that the Mavericks were obviously a great team and this and that. I guess some of the bad luck for myself is, is, you know, I play the same position as Dirk and it's like Dirk's the Hall of Fame, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. So it's like there's not going to be very many minutes at that position. <laughs> right. I went into training camp kind of understanding that, that, you know, obviously just not going to be very many minutes. And um, I was okay with that. You know, I was kind of thinking like, well, at least I'll be able to learn from Dirk and he'll be able to teach me things and I'll be able to be around him like every day. And, you know, there could be, I could have worse problems, like you said. So, but yeah, just kind of like when I went in, it just, you know, after training camp, I just kind of knew, like, you know, I mean, uh, I don't think uh, Avery was a big fan of mine, and I don't think he really wanted a whole lot to do with me. So after training camp, I kind of understood, like, even if there was minutes to be had, I wasn't going to be getting them. And yeah, it just, it turned out to be not a very good match for myself. Just out of, Pure curiosity, um, what what makes you think that Avery wasn't a, a, a fan of yours? <laughs> uh, I mean, I felt like, there were, you know, there was times I felt like I was invisible, you know. I know there was a lot of guys that would talk to him, and, you know, he'd get, you know, he'd, he'd kind of get to, you know, talking to guys and, you know, explain this is why he's doing that. But I probably never said more than 10 words to the guy the whole time I was there, you know. I know I wasn't there long because I got sent to the D-League. Right. But, um yeah, I just, I never even talked to him. I was never told, like, this is what you need to do to help yourself get minutes or this is what you need to get better. Like, no one really ever really told me that. And, you know, like I said, when I was in practice, it was just like, you know, obviously you had to let the veterans get the minutes and, they, you know, they're subbing me out. So it was like, honestly, I was, I only got to play defense in practice. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get to showcase anything if I'm only playing defense. <laughs> defense isn't what I'm good at. Like, I'm good at shooting. I'm good at scoring and this and that. But anytime we would have an offensive possession or, like, anytime, you know, it would change hands in practice, you know, I'd be the, I'd be the first guy to get subbed out. I couldn't tell, you know, Damp or Dirk or Sagana or any of those guys, like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to play this possession. 
Yeah. If I told them that, you know, they, that, that wouldn't have not went over well. So anytime, you know, I really never really felt like I got a chance to, you know, really do much in practice. And But then the times that I did, I felt like I played well enough to at least, you know, maybe have a bone thrown to me every once in a while and some maybe garbage time and this and that. But, you know, again, I'm not, you know, not making excuses because that team was a good team. So it was like they didn't need a rookie to come in and put them over the top. To, to the team's defense, I totally understood that, you know, and I knew that I wasn't going to come in and be, you know, uh, an X-factor type of guy or the guy that's going to put him over the top. I knew that. So it was just a different role for me, you know. It was just some days was frustrating because it was like, you know, I would go to practice and I would barely do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand why that would be frustrating, especially like once you reached your goal of being in the NBA and then you don't really get a, a fair chance to showcase your ability. So – um, I know in, in your stint in Dallas, you played two games early in the season and then uh, in November and then two games in February. And between that, you were in Tulsa, right? Yeah, I was in Tulsa the whole time. So when you're in like technically on an NBA roster, but not, you know, physically with the team, are you like kept in the loop about things that are going on with the team or do you have like I'm, this is just me being curious as a NBA fan and not knowing anything about the day-to-day life of it honestly I wasn't really kept in the loop at all you know so the guy who you know Popeye Jones he treated me pretty good and you know Popeye really tried to help me and Popeye you know I think the fact that he had played overseas and you know knew what it was like to kind of like have to crack your way into the NBA he kind of you know, he kind of helped me out and was like a really good influence for me. So when I got shipped off to Tulsa, yeah, you know, I was like told I was going to Tulsa and they, they kind of told me how it was all going to happen. And, you know, at the time they were like, oh, yeah, we'll keep in touch with you. You know, we'll keep tabs on you, yada, yada, yada. And then I get to Tulsa and, um, you know, Tulsa turned out to be a good situation because uh, Ramon Sessions, my college teammate, was on my team. Mm-hmm. So... But then that kind of played with my head because Ramon was – he was with Milwaukee and I was with Dallas. And so Ramon, you know, we would – we lived right next door to each other. I mean, Ramon and I were inseparable. We were with each other every single day. We drove to practice every day. I mean, we were best friends in college. So, of course, that relationship continued. Right. Yeah, the more to answer your question, I was not kept in the loop with anything. I wasn't told that this was going to happen or I was never called and told, hey, man, you're doing a great job or – hey, man, you know, the coach says you're doing this. You know, maybe you need to do this. Like, I, was, I wasn't told anything. And so that was, like, the other thing. It was almost like I was just shipped to Tulsa and I was just collecting a paycheck. And it was like, we forgot about you. We got our own problems to worry about up here, which is understandable. I mean, obviously, no one's going to care about the rookie that's doing whatever he's doing in the D-League. But I would have just thought, like, hey, maybe a call every once in a while to see how I was doing, see how I was enjoying it, kind of saying, hey, we're going to think about bringing you back here you know, we're going to bring you in, you know, to come back to practice with the team or take you on this road trip. But because that was how Ramon was treated. Like, mm-hmm. Ramon would always say, hey, man, the other team called me. They're talking about bringing me back uh, for this road trip or they're talking about doing this and yada, yada, yada. But for me, I was never I was never told anything. And then, obviously, when I got brought back, I was brought back for that trade. Yeah. And I got to play that one night. And I remember walking into the, you know, to the – coaches offices and you know the first guy I saw was Popeye and Popeye was like man he was like you were killing in the D-League man he was like he was like believe it or not everyone up here was paying attention and 
they were like, man, Nick is playing really, really well. And so that, you know, that made me feel good because, you know, like I said, the next, for me, when I went to Tulsa, I said, look, man, just don't worry about it. Just go down here and play well and you'll be back. Like this is, this is the plan that you're supposed to, you know, be on. So Mm -hmm. that's what I did. And when I went back and they told me I played well, it made me feel good. But then, you know, no short of a week later, I was, you know, uh, waved. Yeah. Yeah. I I know. So they could, make all those tweaks to the roster to, for the eventual Jason Kidd deal. What's the, uh, and uh, not to go into too much detail here, but like, what's the process of getting waived? Like, how does that work? Do you like just get a phone call and say, Hey, you're waived. And like, how, uh, like so how I'm, I would imagine it goes down like that for a lot of people. Um, yeah. You know, I was lucky to have Donnie Nelson as my GM. So um, Donnie lived in Plano and, you know, I'm not sure if any, a lot of people know, but Devin George also, he had decided not, that he didn't want to be traded to New Jersey. So that's why, that's in turn why, why I was waived. At first, I was supposed to be kept in Dallas, but Devin had decided he didn't want to go to New Jersey. So they had to put all that trade back together, and that's why they had to sign Keith and waive me. Yes, I remember that. He uh, used his, uh, his bird rights or something, right? So he, yeah. yeah. So yeah. He, he, he basically, we vetoed the trade at the very last minute because when I showed back up in Dallas, I believe we played Portland that night. I remember it was like Devin George, Devin Harris. I think Sagana was part. I think he yeah, was part he, of he it. He was part of it. And I think Stackhouse was going to be. And then, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he wasn't, he ended up not being part of it. And um, Trenton Hassel was part of it. Yeah, when I showed up, there, you know, there was a bunch of guys that were DMPing that night because they were going to be part of the trade. So I got to play that night, and then, you know, I'm thinking, well, this is the best situation ever. We're going to bring in Jason Kidd. We're getting rid of, like, five veterans. Like, I've been playing well. Like, they're probably going to have to keep me up here now. Yeah. Um, Just strictly as a body. Well, then I, you know, then I had talked to the weightlifting coach, and he kind of told me how it was all going to happen because I walked in, and, you know, I didn't know what the heck was going on. And I'm like, why isn't everyone playing? And then he explained it to me. And so then I was you know, I was like, this is sweet for me. And then I come to find out that that trade didn't work. And then so Donnie Nelson actually – he actually told me to meet him at Starbucks in Plano and was like, hey, man, I want to I talk to you. You know, I want to explain how this whole waiver process is going to work. I don't want to just – I don't want you to be in the dark on this whole thing because I know you're a rookie and this is the first time you've dealt with professional basketball and yada, yada, yada. So, like I said, I was fortunate to have him as a GM. He took me to Starbucks. He sat me down. He explained it was a business. You know, he was like, look, Nick, it's not anything you didn't do. It's just that, hey, we're, we're trying to make this trade. And, you know, I'm like, well, of course. Like, if I could trade for Jason Kidd, I'd trade for him too, you know? Like, yeah. and obviously – Hindsight being 2020, it worked out perfectly for the Mavericks because they end up winning the championship. So I can't, I'm not upset by that at all. And I was happy that he told me how it was going to work. So he took me there. They told me they're going to put me on waivers. And then obviously you sit on waivers for 48 hours. And in those 48 hours, anyone can pick you up. But if someone picks you up in that 48 hours, then they also have to take on the contract that the previous team had given you. Right. So Donnie told me that, he was like, Nick, I'm pretty sure no one's going to pick you up in 48 hours because they don't need to be paying you for two years since that's what we were going to give you. They might as well, if they're going to bring you in, they could just bring you in on 10 days and then they can pay you a whole lot less and sort of evaluate you with having to pay you less money. So 
you know, I sat at home and just waited for uh, the next call. Thank you so much for going into detail about that. Um, I, I, like, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this is just to kind of hear some maybe behind the scenes things. And, you know, you're, you're not the first person that told me that, you know, Donnie Nelson is just like amicable and professional. And uh, it's, it's really cool to hear because I, mean, you know, I think you've done a great job with the Mavs and uh, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, so I know you were eventually picked up by the Clippers on a couple of 10-day contracts and then signed for the rest of the season. And there you did get to have some playing time and you had some good games and, you know, some double-digit scoring games, including one back in Dallas of March of that year. Um, you had, I'm looking at the, your stat line right now. You went five for six from the field and just in uh, 16 minutes you had 10 points. Um, what do you remember most about that game? Was there like a certain sense of motivation for you for, uh, during that particular game? I mean, a little bit for sure. I mean, obviously I was going back and, you know, my my family was there and maybe not that game specifically. Like, you know, at that point when the Clippers gave me a second chance, I just, you know, I said, okay, sweet. You know, and Dunleavy, you know, he, you know, he told me he was going to give me a chance. He told me he was going to play me and he told me that, you know, they, they wanted to evaluate me and this and that. So like, you know, personally for me, man, I would go into the game with, with no time left, a couple minutes, you know, we at the, with NLA, we were so bad. I think we lost like 26 or like 25 of the 27 games that I played there that I was there for. So we were really, really bad. And, but yeah, the Dallas game, obviously I went back and it wasn't, it wasn't long that I had seen like the equipment guy, the, you know, the weightlifting guy. So it was nice to see all those guys. And then, yeah. Obviously, there's a specific play where, you know, Devin was guarding me. And, you know, I remember Dirk was, like, yelling at me up from the bench and <laughs> trying to horse around. And I spun on Devin and dunked it. And, you know, it was a pretty sweet play. And it was kind of like a way to be like, hey, this is what you guys are missing out on. Or, you know, like, this is what you guys could have had. But, um, you know, it was it was kind of – it was fun to go back, you know, and just kind of play. But, um, yeah, like I said, when I was in L.A., man, I was – I was playing as my life was on the line because, you know, evidently it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that that's really cool. I mean, because, I mean, like I said, I looked at just some of your, your stat lines and you played well there. Um, and I know after that is when your, your international career started. Um, did, have you, did you have any chances to return to the NBA after, after that 2008 season? No, I never did. You know, I went um, – once I went overseas, you know, I was pissed off and felt like I kind of failed. And, you know, like, especially after I got cut in Denver, I never had a chance to make the team in Denver. So it was just, mm-hmm. once I went overseas, it just kind of felt like I failed. And like, like I said, I just, I didn't have much motivation to really play overseas. Cause I told, I, cause after I played for the Clippers, I, I knew I was good enough to play in the NBA. Like you said, I played, I played some good games and, you you know, the Clippers kept me and, you know, I had double digit scoring. I rebounded the ball. Well, I felt like I really played my way into the NBA to be like, okay, look, you you know, I'm, I'm serviceable in the NBA. And so it was just a real, you know, a real punch to the gut when I went overseas and I had to play overseas and, you know, I, I never, you know, I never dreamt of playing overseas. You know, obviously as a kid, you only think about playing the NBA. So when I went overseas, I was, like I said, I was pissed off and didn't really care. And, you know, like my first stint overseas was in Belgium. And, you know, I took my best friend with me and, 
you know, we tried to make the most of it. And I just, I hated it, man. I just, I didn't play well. I didn't like where I lived. I didn't like the basketball. I just hated everything about it. So obviously my, my performance really, really lacked. And then not, 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 not too soon. It was, I was cut. I think I was like three, maybe three months in. I thought I had broke my thumb and I had heard horror stories about, you know, how teams, wouldn't tell you if you were actually hurt so that they could keep you around. And, you know, you hear a bunch of stories about Europe and this and that. So I just, my thumb was really messed up and they wanted me to play. And I was like, I'm not playing. Like my thumb's jacked up. And so I didn't play. And then the next day I showed up and they cut me. And I specifically remember going home and telling my buddy that I was like, man, we're going home. And I was so excited to go home. Cause I, yeah. just, I was like, I'm not in Europe anymore. Wow. Um, yeah. And I mean, you use the word horror stories and I was actually going to ask you about that because in these conversations that I've been having for some of the guys that have played overseas, they've talked about some really uh, like difficult experiences that they have had, particularly playing in Europe. Are there any specific ones that you remember that uh, you wouldn't mind sharing? Just, just like one story that, you know, just kind of a, like a nightmare situation or anything like that? Uh, I'll say the biggest nightmare was um, I went to, playing France and I was playing in Dijon, France. And, you know, I went over there and thought it was going to be a good situation. Kind of had my head screwed on straight this time. and kind of told, you know, like by the time my agent was like, look, Nick, you just have to go over there one more time. The Wizards are interested, you know, just play well, blah, blah, blah. So um, went over there and in the beginning I was playing okay. But then what started to happen was they stopped paying us. So I didn't get along with the coach, you know, very well. And like I said, like the first payment probably came like a week late. And then, you know, then the second payment probably came two weeks late. And then I remember it was three weeks late. And then the next time, by the time the, the following payment had been four weeks late, the team straight up told us like, oh, yeah, we're paying you guys on time this time. Because like there was t there was talks of like, that at one point, I remember a bunch of guys got together in the locker room and were like, if we don't get a pay, we kind of had a, a players only meeting. We're like, if we don't get our paychecks by tomorrow, no one's going to show up and we're not going to play and, and this and that. And so like, they always would end up paying when it got to that point. But I remember like it, they had got to the point where it was four weeks late and they were like, yeah, we're going to be paying you guys, you know, on time tomorrow. And it's like, no, 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 no. you guys are a whole month late. Like I'm still <laughs> owed a whole other four weeks of pay. Right. Like, no one's paying us on time. Well, in the whole grand scheme of things, we come to find out that the president or the GM of the team was stealing money. And, oh, geez. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously there was no money to pay us players. And, you know, like, you know, you're going two-a-days in Europe, you know, like, and you're, you know, you're living in Europe in this tiny, tiny town. And as an American, it's, you know, it's not – if you're living in a small town, it's tough. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's tough to live in those small European towns. If you're living in, you know, Barcelona or Paris, you're going to be all right because you're going to find English. There's going to be a lot to do. The food's going to be okay. But when you're living in a small town that takes you a couple hours to get to Paris like I was in, it just – everything gets more magnified. And so – when that was happening, you know, we were losing games and they're all every week they're talking about replacing all of us. And then, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm not going to get a paycheck. But then at the time I was like, well, they're not paying us anyways. Who really cares? <laughs> um, but it was just, you know, it was, 
it was a disaster of a season. I mean, we were losing games, and it was kind of just karma for the team because it was like, well, good, we should be losing games. No, no one's paying us on time. The GM's stealing money, so we shouldn't be winning any games. And, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'm sure, you know, I've heard so many horror stories with Europe and just, yeah, I'm, you know, the more the more podcasts you do, man, and the more you get guys from Europe, you'll be hearing some crazy, crazy stories. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard a couple so far, um, and so it's always interesting and fascinating to me because I just I can't wrap my head around like how those things are allowed to happen, but it it obviously is a very common thing. So over there, so so I know you 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 mentioned Belgium and France, and then uh, you were in the Philippines also, right? Before you moved on to uh, to Japan. Yeah. So. Um... So I went back to the D League for a little bit. Um, you know, I had ankle surgery after my after that year in France where they weren't paying us, and so I just was dying to go home. And they told me they were going to pay me out if I went home and had surgery. So I just said, "Screw it, I'm going home," and didn't get paid, obviously. And um, had ankle surgery, kind of had some complications with my ankle. Had to end up having a second surgery and. You know, now I'm a little bit different. My ankle just doesn't move as well and everything like that. But, um, yeah, I went to the D-League and uh, played, like, I only played probably, like, two or three games. Had an agent. He actually wrote me on Facebook. Wow. And, um, you know, they he, he was like, hey, man, do you want to go to the Philippines and play for this amount? And I was like, you know, at the time I was like, man, I haven't made that kind of money and I like, yeah, I've never made that, like, that kind of money since probably like my first year I went to Europe. Yeah. So at the time yeah. I'm thinking, man, this is, this, there's no way this is real. Like this Philippine thing has got to be a joke. Well, it worked in my favor because Richie Fromm from Gonzaga was my assistant coach with the Reno Bighorns and Richie's first gig out of college was in the Philippines. And so Richie was talking up Manila like it was the best place ever. <laughs> so sure enough, I started to really get in talks with this agent and I was like, yeah, man. And like two days later, he had a contract in my email and I was like, holy cow, this thing's real. It's just kind of a bummer that the D league sort of keeps guys hostage because I had a great opportunity sitting in front of me to make good money and, you know, kind of relaunch my career. And yet the D league had this huge buyout above my head and the owner of the D league team didn't want to let me go. And the coach was like, Oh no, this isn't going to work out for you. You should just stay here. And I just remember being pissed off in that meeting. Like, man, guys, why are you guys trying to prevent me from trying to go try to, you know, obviously chase the money and, you know, restart my career. It's never going to get started here in the D league. Right. And so sure enough, you know, we ended up working it out. I got the buyout and I went to the Philippines and that just going to the Philippines it just relaunched my career, man. Without going to the Philippines, I was, I was on the verge of retiring and never getting to where I am now. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's really cool. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, the things kind of turned in your favor there. So it seems like you've reached some stability in Japan. Um, I, I believe, is this your, your sixth season over there now? Yeah, this is my sixth year. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. What's, uh, just, like what like one or two of your uh, your favorite things about playing professional basketball in Japan uh yeah, I would say the ease of it you know yeah. over here it's it's uh it's definitely not nearly as cutthroat one thing that I tell people all the time is Europe is Europe loves defense like they want to play games in the 50s and you know it's 
they don't they don't really care much about offense. But in Asia, it feels like it's more offense minded, and they want you to score points. And you know that that's that's more suited for me. So I would say something. You know, part of that plays a huge role for me to making it fun for me over here. And then, like I said, the ease of it. You know, I in Europe, you you got to practice twice a day going at each other all the time. You're only playing one time a week. So all you're doing is it feels like you're just practicing all day long. And at least over here in Japan, you're you're practicing like an hour, hour and a half a day. You know, you're getting two days off a week. You're playing twice a week. I mean, the, the, lax, the laxness of the schedule over here is just, it's perfect for a guy who just wants to come over here and score baskets and get paid. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's really cool. And, I, yeah, thank thank you for answering that. I appreciate your honesty. That's always that's always really cool to hear. I think I just have two more questions for you. And uh, thank you so much for again for for talking to me tonight. I, I really appreciate it, Nick. My first question is: During your one year in the NBA, what was the uh, the funniest trash talk you heard? Oh man, that's or quite tough. Just like one thing that you, that sticks out. Trash talk. Well, you going to really rack my brain for this. Um, <laughs> uh. Or even overseas, good, even overseas. That's a good, that's yeah. a good question. Man. I mean, I've, I don't know. I mean, I probably, I probably didn't really ever hear much. You know, I mean, yeah. I was hoping that I would get to hear some of that stuff. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you, you hear guys disrespecting guys with their families, or you yeah. know, maybe their weight, or just things like that. But um, yeah, I probably don't have any good ones from the NBA. Um, you know, I guess sometimes overseas, you know, you hear things like if you get like a former NBA guy over here, like, you know, he'll, he likes to rant and rave about how much he's worth. And, you know, you know, you can you hear things all the time overseas, like and I'm probably even guilty of it, where if you're playing a guy of lesser than you, you might tell someone, hey, man, you know, I'm I'm making in one month what you make in a whole entire year. And, <laughs> you know, some of overseas is predicated off of money and stuff like that. But. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really have any great trash talk stories. All right. Well, that's that's cool. Uh, thanks anyway for that on that one. Um, the last question I have, and this is something I, I've I've done with a few former Mavs now. Um, I have in front of me the opening day roster for the 2007-2008 Dallas Mavericks. I wanted to see. There's 14 names on it, including you. I wanted to see how many of them you can name. Ooh. Let me think of how to go about this. If I go, I believe our point guards were J.J. Barea, Devin Harris. Oh, man, we must have had someone else, but I can't think of who it was. Jerry Stackhouse was on that team. Josh Howard, Jason Terry, Eric Dampier, Sagana Jopp, um, obviously Dirk, Dirk. Uh, De- I believe Devin George was there. Yep. Eddie Jones was there. Yep. Um, oh, Maurice Ager was on that team. Yep. And then you've and, got uh, actually th- 13 of them. You got one more. Is it Brandon Bass? Yep. You got them all. And uh, yeah, I know you briefly mentioned him earlier, so I thought you might get it. Yeah. I, I can see it from, I can see it in the locker room. I used to sit in the corner of the locker room, and I just remember, you know, there's probably plenty of times I was sitting around, you know, thinking man I've accomplished my dream and looking at the names and but um everyone on that team was a good guy you know there wasn't anyone that was you know that did his own thing and you know I'm sure you've heard stories of Dirk you know like being the greatest superstar and the most welcoming superstar I mean 
Dirk tried to help me out, guys like Sagana. Um, I used to play golf with Jed. Kind of a funny story probably for you is um, being a rookie, I didn't realize that you had to have a sport coat if you didn't sit on the bench or if you didn't play. Yeah. So my first game, Casey, the trainer, calls me up and is like, hey, you're not playing tonight. You know, you have a suit. I didn't have a suit because I didn't go to the draft. I didn't even think I needed that, you know. And so I had to go to like a big and tall store and I bought like this piece of junk suit coat (laughs) with like gold buttons. I looked like a sailor. And I'll never forget Stackhouse. Stackhouse was killing me, man. He like he was killing. That was probably some good trash talk. The way Stackhouse was talking about my suit coat. But um, being a rookie at the time, Stackhouse Stackhouse was a very very strong personality, and a lot of guys respected him. And so Stackhouse had come up to me one time in Dallas and was like, "Hey, Rook, I need you to go to Dirk, and I need you to go to Damp, and I need you to tell him." hey, they're going to be buying you a suit and I'm going to buy you another suit so you'll have three suits so you don't have to walk around in this sailor suit anymore. <laughs> so I was kind of nervous about it, you know, and I was kind of like, how am I going to go tell Dirk that he has to spend his money on me? And, like, I had to tell Damp. I was kind of cool with Damp, you know, a little bit, but Damp was kind of a, you know, intimidating guy as well. So I remember thinking, man, I'm these guys are going to look at me and they're going to be, you know, mother effing me, like, there's no way they're spending their money. So sure enough, Damp had like a suit, a suit um, person. And I told Damp, I said, hey, man, Stack said, you guys got to buy me suits. And so Dirk and Damp were like, okay, cool. So uh, also at the same time, Jet loved to play golf and mm-hmm. no one would play golf with him. And I enjoyed playing golf as well. So Jet had me set up to go to the Nike in Fort Worth, and he was going to get me set up with some brand new Nike clubs. Damn, that's so I had all this stuff that works. Yeah, and I was like, man, this is awesome. These guys are hooking me up, like you know, this and that. So sure enough, I go over to Dan's house. I get measured for the suits, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get your suit ready. We'll get it ready. We'll, you know, just got to make them and this and that. And they were, you know, all nice, expensive suits. Those guys didn't they they didn't bat an eyelash at paying for them. Well, sure enough, I think it was a day or two later, I got sent to the D League, and I never saw any of that stuff. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> I was well, so bummed out. And, you know, I told Jed that I had to leave, and he's like, man, well, I'll, I'll, when we come back, we'll get you the clubs and. You know, I just, when I came back, I just, I was in, I was there for like a week before I got waived. So I was all bummed out that I didn't get to see any of that stuff. Yeah, I would be too. Um, wow, that's, that's really, uh, that's a cool story. And uh, I'm actually, I'm looking at that roster list and uh, I totally missed it. We forgot to mention Trenton Hassel, but I mean, you got everybody else. I just, I just noticed that right now. Um, I wasn't sure if Trent, I wasn't sure if Trent came in mid-year or not, but yeah, he was there. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, well, well, uh, you know, I, I've really enjoyed the, this talk, Nick. Um, you know, I, you've given some like the, the story you just mentioned, and uh, some other kind of behind the scenes stuff was really neat. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me. Um, uh, and I, I hope is your season over in uh, Tokyo right now, or is it still going on? Nah, we're about a third of the way done. We uh, we play sixty games over here, so it's a long year. Um, wow. You get here in August, you don't go home until May, and even I think the last, the championship game is the last game of May. So um, it's a long year, but, you know, my wife and I, we, we love living here. And 
uh, you know, we live like 20 minutes outside of Tokyo. We live in a high rise and I mean, it's sweet. You know, I mean, you just, you, there, there, there's not a better city in the world than Tokyo, man. If you ever get a chance to visit, you should definitely do it because it's an awesome place and people are really nice over here and it's, just, it's a great place for us. I mean, we're actually, we like it so much. We're going to have, I'm, I'm, we're going to have a baby boy in March and we're actually going to just do it over here because it just seems easier to do it over here. And, I guess that's just kind of how accustomed we've come to this city. I mean, it's wow. just, it almost feels like home to us. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Congratulations on, uh, on the, the baby coming. That's really exciting. I'm happy for you. Well, uh, like I said, thank you so much for, for talking to me. I, I hope you and, uh, and your wife uh, have, a, have a great holiday. All right, man. You too. Merry Christmas to you, man. Thanks. You too. Merry Christmas. And uh, I'll send you a link once I have this ready uh, or once I have this online. All right. Sweet, man. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot, Nick. Have a good one. All right, bye. Bye.